Hi guys, my name is Dr. Shornell Warburton Sihan. I'm so excited to introduce to you my new and latest book, The Science of Miracles, Remembering the Frequency of Love. This is your time to shift any kind of negative things that have been in your life that no longer serve you into something beautiful, miraculous, abundant, thriving health, business, partnership, whatever the situation, this is your time. Get the book, apply the principles, and watch the miracles happen for you. All right, guys, we are back. My name is Dr. Shornell Wolverton Sihan and Craig Walker and I are here today. And I'm super, super pumped about this new guest that we have. Andrew Collins is here with us. So um, yeah, before we get started, <laughs> I'm gonna get like super excited. Go to swiftfire.org and get on the newsletter. That's the best way that you can connect with what we're doing, all of our classes, our books, research, all the stuff that we're putting out with our blog uh, and our shows, our podcast. Um, and do your due diligence. Um, this is really fun and exciting. And we're in a period of critical thinking and actually having the opportunity to remember that we can think for ourselves and we don't have to just take what anybody tells us as the truth. We can look it up. We actually have ways to do that. So I encourage you guys to research our new guest, Andrew, and some of the things that he's going to talk about today. And um, yeah, um, just go, please share this tag. Um, if you can help keep the show on, we love your donations. All of that really helps to keep this going. And without further ado, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to turn this over to Craig because Craig and Andrew actually met in real life in the UK here recently. And I'm going to. In real life. Yeah, in real life. Yeah. yeah, people do still meet, believe it or not. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, so uh, there was a, a huge uh, expo, a conference, the Awakening Conference that was in my hometown of Blackpool. I literally got to sleep in my own bed at night uh, during the conference, which was tremendous. I didn't have to travel um and andrew was there and i got to have a quick chat with andrew obviously everybody wanted to chat with andrew um how did you think that went andrew um the conference yeah, yeah i mean for me it was the first really big uh you know post-covid con conference that i'd been to i mean there was probably about 600 people there um and i mean it was just it sort of reminded me of the world that existed you know before lo lockdown really I think nice. I'd almost forgotten about that, having spent so much time, you know, on my own in the house, just typing away or messing about. Yeah. Um, it was good to to be aware that, you know, something else was going on and that, that during the lockdown, people were actually watching you on things like, you know, Ancient Aliens, Unexplained with William Shatner and, you know, Gaia TV, which I contribute to two of their uh, shows, which is Ancient Civilizations and Deep Space. And I think that, you know, that meant a lot of people. I mean, to have almost like a sort of spiritual um, thing going on during lockdown was was really important to people. I think it sort of, you know, once they kept them alive, but certainly, you know, helped them through it. And the payback for me, obviously, of that was people coming up to me at that conference and saying, look, you know, I was watching you all the way during lockdown. It's just such an honour now. To meet you and you know that stunned me in a way but it just reminded me of, of what i actually do i mean you know obviously i write books and i appear on television and generally try and spread the truth so you know it was an eye-opener and i i enjoyed it incredibly and i hope i'm invited back in future years 
Absolutely. Yeah. Like I say, it's the first thing I've ever been to like that because uh, you won't know, but Sean L and I have come from a kind of a, a Christian background. Oh. Uh, Sean L has been a, a minister for many, many years. Um, and we've both simultaneously had what we describe as like an awakening uh, where we're really seeking the truth and which, which is leading us to people like yourselves, the one who are doing the work and we're finding your work and it's really helping us sort of uh, connect dots. Uh, so it was the first thing like that that I ever went to, and I thought it was brilliantly organised. It was a really mm. nice vibe. Everyone was there, happy. I think everyone was happy to be together again. Mm. Um, so, it, and, and again, one thing I found is certainly with, with the speakers, because there were some pretty big names there, uh, including yourself, and there was no celebrity worship. There was no, so it was like we were all just, we were family. Do you know what I mean? We're, and we, yeah, and you, you, you were all happy to talk to whoever. There was yeah. no, like, doing your talk and then going off somewhere. You know, you just hung out with us, and it was a really, really, really nice thing. Um, so, without further ado, um, I would like to get into your uh, your new book, um, which is Origins of the Gods. Now, we had. Um, do you know Paul Wallace? The he's, he's a Brit who lives in Australia. Um, no. He's written um, some book, uh, well, a series of books. Uh, the one I uh, read is um, oh, the title escapes me now. Um, it's about Eden. Anyway, he's talking about the <laughs> Eden. Yeah. yeah, that's it. That's the one. Um, and uh, so he, he's he's actually a, a, a minister. He, he's a Christian, an Anglican priest who has had this revelation of, of um, the gods and the Old Testament. Um, but what you do is you come. He, so he comes from a theological uh, background. Hmm. Um, what's your background? How did you get into and sort of? Um, how did it start for you? Well, I, I mean, you know, from my own personal point of view, I mean, it started when I was a child, probably nine or ten. And I, I just had this interest in everything weird and wonderful, whether it be, you know, ghost hunting, interpreting dreams, um, the idea of astral projection, the idea of seeing UFOs and, um, you know, uh, 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 and discussing essentially the mysteries of the universe. I mean, and I thought, all kids were into that and yet it wasn't until i really reached um you know sort of high school that i realized that it was just me and a couple of nerdy mates that were actually into this subject mm -hmm. um and of course ufos back then was a subject that was seen as um uh, had a stigma associated let's say and so you just kept your mouth shut and you know then i lost interest for a while you know girls and going to discos and whatever but when I started work properly in London as a shipping clerk, um, the journey each day on the train, I would start reading all these pulp paperbacks on UFOs, Ancient Mysteries, Von Daniken, Chariot the Gods, and all this sort of stuff. And I absorbed every single one I could get my hands on. And I got to the point where I said to myself, I want to get closer to this subject, to this phenomena, and this intelligence, because I at that point I realized that we were dealing with, you know, one or possibly more intelligences. And how could I do that? So I thought, well, the best thing to do is to become a UFO investigator. So go around people's houses with a nice form and say, you know, what did you see up in the sky? And very quickly I started to um, interview people that had close encounters. And then things started getting really interesting because I started to realize that what I'd been told in these books about UFOs and their origins and about, you know, the, the supposed occupants or in of them 
something was not right. I mean, there was something else going on here which you were not being told, or certainly not being told by most of the authors. And that was the fact that there was very clearly a psychic connection going on between the witnesses and what was being observed. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. I mean, firstly, you know, people would see an object, let's say, moving across the sky, and they would connect with it visually and think about it, and it suddenly stop and maybe, you know, move in a different direction or even come, in, come towards them. So the, the, the fact of observing the object seemed to have some kind of effect upon it. So that's point one. And secondly, I realised that the number of people, when they saw these objects, felt a psychic link with them. And what I mean by that is that they, they felt a connection with the intelligences, the consciousness that was somehow associated with them. And again, you, you think of this, it doesn't quite make sense because, you know, if you, if you watch a, a helicopter go over, you know, just by observing it does not connect you with the pilot and the navigator. It just doesn't happen. And yet this was occurring in connection with UFOs. And, you know, whether this be small balls of light, big objects or whatever. And I, and I just and I thought, well, something not right, you know, because if these objects are simply made of nuts and bolts and are coming from, you know, planet X or whatever it is, then why why would we would be linking with them in mind? And of course, obviously, you you think well maybe the UFO occupants are very clever and they they got telepathic abilities, which obviously has been reported, or these psychic people are just liars and yeah, you know, this isn't happening at all. This is all their imagination. But I quickly dismissed that because no, these people were very genuine. And then I investigated the first ever full blown abduction complete with car stop and everything that's involving a, a family of five in Essex, what took place in 1974, and I investigated it in 1977, I know it's a long time ago, but, um, and basically what happened was that they were driving along a road and they saw this oval blue light cross. Um, they were quite excited by it. Two of the children were asleep. One of them was standing up in, in the back with his hands on the driver's seat and the passenger seat and when that went outside they went they they gradually went round a bend and the car headlights failed the engine failed they could no longer hear the tire tires going over the road and in front of them was a luminous bank of green mist and they plowed into this and everything just stopped you know they felt nauseous they felt like they'd entered into another worldly environment and then nothing the next thing they recall, they're three quarters of a mile further on and they get home from this very short journey and realise that three hours are missing from their life. And of course, you know, not only does it perplex them, but it obviously scares them to, to think what might have happened. So they shut up. They don't say anything about this. And other than a few weird dreams involving these small gnome like figures and bright rooms and stuff like this, which didn't really mean a lot to them. They didn't do anything until three years later. And um, they responded to a, an article in a paper and eventually I, I got to, to interview them. And this set up a lifelong friendship with this family who I 100% believe, as I have no doubt that what they say happened to them. And uh, I organized a hypnosis for uh, the male of the family. His name was John Day, still is. I'm still in touch with him today. and. 
you know, it revealed a classic on-board experience. You know, the, the car was taken on board the craft and, you know, they all got out and met these tall aliens and, you know, there were some small ones there as well. And they were, you know, subjected to a medical examination, then shown around the, the ship and shown a big screen of what horrible things we're doing in the world and that we've all got to change, you know, otherwise bad things were going to go on. That, and then put back down. So very, very typical on-board experience. But something told me that something wasn't right here because there were a few indications that there was something more going on. Firstly, John said that he could re recall an almost an out-of-body experience during it where he could actually see the car below him with him and his wife, what appeared to be slumped in the car, which you think, well, what's going on there? And secondly, when they came out of the uh, the mist, three quarters of a mile further on, the two small children were still asleep in exactly the same positions. And the third child was still standing up with his hands on the passenger and the driver's seat. And, you know, I thought, well, how is that possible? Were the aliens obliging and put everybody back in exactly the right position so that nobody would notice and then went zap and stop them from remembering what was going on or was something else happening and to me i suddenly started realizing that they didn't necessarily spend three hours inside a spaceship that what had happened occurred instantaneously as far as them being taken out of normal space time and jumping three hours of time and three quarters of a mile of space and distance. And, you know, so to them, obviously the three hours went missing, but what happened to them outside of normal space time and outside of normal time was the experience. And that, yes, it was genuine. Yes, they unquestionably encountered an intelligence of some kind that showed itself in anthropomorphic form, but that there was something more happening. This wasn't simply a case of, encountering nuts and bolts spacecraft you know with flesh and blood aliens there was something else going on here uh, particularly the fact that afterwards john and sue his wife both felt that they retained a mental contact almost like a telepathic contact with this intelligence that continued for many years and perhaps even continues to this day and that you know that that, that this wasn't simply some kind of physical aliens and in fact John felt that the intelligence was associated with the center of everything, the center of the universe or center of galaxy or something, and that he could go in mind and connect with them at night during dreams and that they would share and impart you know, universal knowledge and wisdom um, that he could then bring back into the, 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 the material world. So I started to realize that we may be looking not just the idea of extraterrestrials visiting this planet, which I have no problem with, uh, but that there's something else going on as well, something that could even be bigger. And that's connection with a consciousness or intelligence that may be outside of normal space time. And if that's the case, then it's very likely to be multidimensional in nature. In other words, whereas we live in a realm of three dimensions of space and one of time, that there were environments where there were multiple in, um, dimensions involved, mm. possibly an extra one or maybe several. So
So that that was my premise. And I first started writing about this as early as 1992 in a book called The Circle Makers. Then again in a book called Alien Energy, which came out in 94. Uh, and then another book that came out in 2012 called Light Quest, which is like my piece de resistance on all of this subject. And then finally, of course, Origins of the Gods, which is co-authored with uh, Greg Little. And of course, every single book, we take the matter one step further and really fine tune it as far as science is concerned. And now there is incredible evidence, not just for the existence of higher dimensional realms that coexist with us but also for intelligences that may be connected with them and how they can connect and manifest in our world and we'll, we'll in theory come on to that shortly mm. we got anything to now oh yeah you're muted <laughs> very very fascinating um it's interesting too i know you talk a lot about certain sites um, that are sacred and maybe even portals can you go into a little bit about that and the connection yeah, yeah. With i mean you know one of the things that sort of disillusioned me about um ufos after i realized i started to realize some of this stuff was the idea that you know we were dealing with flesh and flesh and blood aliens and the rest of it was too confusing there were too many different um, types being seen by people too many too much conflicting information to, to the point that i almost gave up the subject but then in 1982 i read a book by a guy called paul Devereux called earth lights which changed everything and what he showed through uh, an intensive study that had been done uh, during the 1970s um, was backed up by you know lots of independent evidence was that there seemed to be certain locations where mysterious lights and what we would call ufos today would appear more frequently than other you know places or other times and that these locations had very similar geologies and this geology involved um underground activity to do with tectonic plates and movement of those plates and the creation and the movement of what are known as fault lines um, but also the presence of certain types of minerals particularly quartz and also tourmaline now the reason why these are important is because when put under pressure or quite literally bent they release electrons from their atoms and these free electrons as they're called they're also known as negative ions will break the surface and um, stay within the environment to create what's known as an electron burst this changes the environment into what's known in science as a ionospheric environment and this is perfect for the manifestation of mysterious lights what we would call ufos but what's important about this information is that paul devereux also discovered that a great many of these places where this geology occurred and where lights appeared both historically and in more modern times there were also sacred and ancient sites like stone circles dolmens uh, standing stones earthworks and this was something that was present you know clearly in you know our country of, of, of britain but also in europe and in other other countries you know let's say north america 
um, similar sacred sites were found, but these would be like medicine wheels, sacred mountains and stuff like that, all of which would be associated with mysterious light phenomena and everything that we have come to associate with the UFO phenomena today. And this doesn't just mean the appearance of, of objects and strange beings, but also paranormal activity and transformative experiences. I mean, one perfect example in California, for instance, is Mount Shasta. I mean, Mount Shasta for hundreds of years has produced mysterious lights. Um, it's got a huge fault line running south to north, right the way through its centre. And of course, it's volcanic as well, for those that know the, the location. Paranormal activity takes place and incredible transformative religious experiences, mystical experiences have gone on and have actually created whole religion surrounding Mount Shasta. And of course, that's aside from the fact that many um, Native American tribes of Northern California venerate it as a place of creation and a place of supernatural power. And this can be seen all over the world. I mean, I've been to sacred mountains, you know, not just places like Mount Shasta or uh, the Blanco Peak in San Luis Valley in Colorado, but also places like Mount Athos in Greece, where mysterious lights are also seen, huge Greek Orthodox community around that because of the lights, but also in places like Taishan Mountain in China, which I, I've been to and climbed, that is also associated with the appearance of mysterious lights, where they're seen in association with the manifestations of Buddha, um, and some of them appear, some of these lights actually appear in front of temples as signs of the contact between these, you know, these deities, these higher intelligences and humankind. And this is, you know, I'm only citing a few examples here. This is a, a universal thing. There is a relationship between the appearance of mysterious lights, what we call UFOs or UFAs today, and different locations. This is not to say that those are the only places where they will occur, but they most frequently are associated with such sites. I mean, ionization is the idea that we've talked about. It's the idea that electrons, which are subatomic particles, can be freed up from their atoms. And once they get free, um, and we're not talking one or two here, we're talking about countless of them, obviously, um, is that they become very excited, and that's a, a very human term, but, you know, they do. And when, they, when this happens, they bump into atoms, and, and this causes the release of their atoms, sorry, their, their, their electron, and it becomes a, a process, a chain reaction. And at the same time, they create these, electro, uh, these electromagnetic fields around them, um, and at a certain point, they can burst into light. They can become light because they release what's known as particles of light, known as photons. And as this happens, it's like a light bulb switching on and boom, suddenly you've got an object that is self-contained and self-existent and can remain from anything from a microsecond to minutes or possibly even longer. And even if it disappears, it can reappear again. And the importance about these objects, which are made of something known as plasma, and plasma is the false state of matter, is that it's been noted again and again that these objects, um, known as plasmoids or plasma constructs, can often 
appear to be intelligent, sentient in nature. In other words, they are almost like a, a, a consciousness or intelligence in their own right. And that when they manifest, they can interact with humans um, and through a process known as quantum entanglement. Quantum entanglement is the idea that particles can become entangled. And when I say particles, I mean, you know, again, countless ones can become entangled so that when, no matter where, how far away they get from each other, they will still retain that entanglement. So that if you tweak one of them, the other one will always move in the equal and opposite direction. You know, like you know, one spin one way and the other one spin the other. And this is something that, that's happening all the time, around us all the time, to create what are known as entangled systems of particles. And, you know, these can also work inside our head. We can have particles, you know, electrons going on to do with our, our, the, the, the function of the brain, the nervous system, all the rest of it. And the other half of those particles could be within a plasma environment. And if that's the case, then if they're both doing the same dance, then they are both conveying the same information. And that allows a what we might call a telepathic link to take place. And this could be also the explanation of what we know as mind over matter, the idea of, of, of the manipulation of the human mind or, in, or indeed the, the mind of, of any creature in theory. Um, and that if this is something that we are becoming aware of today, then it's very possible that other intelligences from, you know, let's say, you know, from outer space or from parallel dimensions who are incredibly more advanced than ourselves, perhaps not just by hundreds or thousand years, but by millions of years, will have mastered this art an awful long time ago, and that they can not only convey telepathic information to us through entanglement, but also manipulate us in whatever they want, whether that be a good or a bad thing. And so this we can associate with these plasma objects. Now, I'm sure many of your viewers will suddenly be saying, well, hold on, you know, what's this got to do with real UFOs with nuts and bolts? Well, it's clearly possibly something else that we're dealing with here. Now, Carl Sagan, as early as 1963, the great cosmologist and astronomer, wrote that it was inevitable that this Earth had been visited by extraterrestrials countless times, you know, during the course of, of the last couple of million years. Um, I mean, this is what he wrote in a paper, um, but it was buried, to be honest, this paper, simply because shortly afterwards, he started to become a, um, a consultant for NASA. And by NASA, and I know this because I've spoken to somebody that, that knew him very well, told him, you've got to stop this stuff. You know, you've got to stop talking about these things called UFOs and, you know, the, the concept of aliens because it's no good for our image. And they did. He stopped it completely, almost went against it publicly. Yeah. But Carl Sagan believed wholly in these intelligences, you know, coming from somewhere else, other, as as we call it, really, you know, to sort of take it out the realms of coming purely from another star system. And so I have no problem with the idea that, you know, that Earth is being visited by extraterrestrials. How frequent it is is another matter. Um, and what's also uh, in debate is its impact upon human civilization yes. but what i am certain is that these other intelligences 
have unquestionably impacted, uh, you know, the, the, the human evolution, human innovation yep. and human technology. And that's the area that I cover in the book, because what we're looking at in the book is the whole idea of who are the true ancient aliens. You know, yes, there may be ancient astronauts coming down here, but there is something bigger going on in the background. And I think that that is multidimensional in nature. Wow. What, what, as, what, what, what are you talking? There's an echo, isn't it? Echo, yeah. Is it gone? There yeah. we go. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Just had an echo there. Um, just, there's, a, there's a line in uh, one of the four films, you know, the Marvel films. And yeah. It says um, that magic is just science we haven't discovered yet. Mm -hmm. And what I love about this is, is you're taking really out there kind of woo-woo subjects and grounding it in science. Yeah, um, and and bringing logic and knowledge into the into the fore. Yeah, uh, because I, you know, in my experience, because we we have really jumped into this world um, of, of kind of the ancient alien theory, or uh, you know, certainly visitors from other worlds. You know, coming from a Christian background, you know, angels, demons, what are they really? That kind of uh, thinking. But there has to be a science to this for it to be true. You mm. know, there has to be. Yeah, um, absolutely. We, we've we've not well mainstream science hasn't in any way acknowledged this or or allowed it to be explored. Have you ever experienced any kind of resistance from the scientific community in looking into <laughs> not this? Not really, not from my perspective, because you know no. my, my background is journalism. I'm not a scholar. I mean, I I, I have no qualifications whatsoever, um, which I think is good because it means that I can talk about anything i can absorb whatever knowledge i want um and come up with you know hypothesis to based on on, on that knowledge uh, whereas if i was a part of the scholarly community i would be restricted in what i could uh, read what i could reference yes. what i could speculate upon so i don't care I'll, I'll say whatever i consider the truth to be but i mean the interesting point is that we live at a time when the US Navy have, have you know confirmed that certain videos that have been released yep. show genuine UFOs yep. and this is a, not just a major step forward but it's a case of now there is no doubt there is no stigma involved with the idea of believing in UFOs mm -hmm. um, but the bigger problem is not just accepting that they're there, but what the hell are they? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, obviously, a lot of people are saying, oh, well, you know, maybe there's some secret project that the US government haven't told us about, or they are the product of maybe drones of some foreign power, you know, and if that's not the case, then, you know, just maybe there's something else. But, and, and, and in a way, I think this is the only way that we can advance at the moment to look at it in a very mechanistic way mm -hmm. that we assume that, you know, those objects in those Navy videos are con intelligently controlled, either they're drones, you know, or somehow there is some kind of occupants in them um, and that they may well be coming from another planet. I don't see massive evidence of that. What I see is objects, objects that we cannot identify. We don't know how they manifested. We don't know what happens to them when they disappear. Mm -hmm. um, and 
we don't know what they're made of. I mean, yes, they appear to be solid, but plasma can be solid, There's, you know, and it can appear on radar. Um, and not only that, but plasma, as was shown in the 1960s by the theoretical physicist um, David Bowen, um, that it can display what we call intelligence. In fact, plasma actually gained its name because it was it because it showed the same type of um, activity as the plasma in you know human blood. Uh, before that time, it was actually known as radiant matter. It had been discovered by a British scientist um, called William Crookes in the 19th century, um, who also realised that, that it was pretty weird stuff. And plasma is the fourth state of matter, but also what's important is that in the last probably 10, 15 years, a number of papers have been written suggesting that it could have an extra dimension of space. Um, and if that's the case, then if there are out there other realms that coexist with us that, you know, that, that, that either, you know, overlay our, 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 you know, our universe or outside of it, probably both in, in actuality, um, then plasma could be the conduit, the medium through which these intelligences can more easily interact with material matter. Um, but these plasma environments could also be portals or doorways from coexisting universes or worlds and that of our own, overlaying with our own and allowing the passage from one to the other, not only of things like cryptids and other strange beings of time and space, but possibly, you know, entities or occupants coming from you know what what to us look like other star systems but are in fact are actually coming from parallel worlds that, that coexist with our own that is extremely possible and that would account for why quite a lot of the the occupants that are seen in association with ufos are actually physically real and you know have been encountered not just in the last 70 80 years since the beginning of the flying saucer era but in the past, and have taken the form of what we would call fairies, elves, gnomes, gob gnomes goblins. Yeah. Um, and the accounts of those are incredibly similar to the modern UFO experiences to, of today. And this is something that was first noticed by people like Jacques Vallée, you know, the famous UFO researcher in books like um, Passport to Magonia, uh, which came out, I think, in the late 60s, early 70s. And also by um, you know people like John Keel, for instance, um, well-known writer of UFO books, you know, including the Mothman prophecies, who strongly realised that was what was going on today is just the continuance of something that's been going on for many thousands of years, and it has. And you know what what, what I show in the book is that it's very likely that the presence of these intelligences. The presence of plasma or plasmoids, um, you know, again, what we call most UFOs, most um, UAPs of today has been with us and has impacted human innovation and technology through quantum entanglement and connection with this phenomenon and actually probably having encounters, um, you know, all over the world. And I, I, I in the book, I concentrate 
on the area of Israel, Palestine, biblical traditions and whatever. And, you know, and show that these intelligences were there back then. I say not just in biblical times, but going back perhaps as much as 400,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And that our earliest ancestors were very interested in the same sites where mm -hmm. these mysterious lights are appearing today. So, you know, once they showed an interest in them and went to the sites, did they have UFO encounters like we have today? I think the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that we know is a whole load of, you know, people that experience this phenomena, get close to it, go on to become incredibly creative. You know, they become artists, they become writers, um, they become poets, they become musicians. Mm -hmm. They're inspired in an incredible way. You know, I mean, for instance, I talked about this this case earlier about this whole family being abducted. Um, well, all of them went on to be, um, you know, inspired. I mean, John Day became an incredible sculptor afterwards. Before that, he was just working in a factory. Um, his wife went on to become a, um, um, oh, what did she do? Um, delivered babies, we call it, sorry. Um, midwife. Yeah, midwife. Yeah. yeah, and actually ended up going out to um, the... I think Iraq as part of the, the war, delivering babies out there. Wow. I mean, you know, I mean, aside from many other things that she did, but, you know, remarkable careers that these people uh, experienced. And as I said, I, I know other people that, that, you know, suddenly became musicians. They felt inspired that they had to write afterwards. Now, yes, yes. if that's going on in the current day, did this go on in the distant past? Was contact and communication, communion, if you like, with these intelligences, with this other consciousness, these trans-dimensional beings, um, you know, responsible for human innovation and technology? I say the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing too that you keep bringing up, no, I don't think what's going on here. Um, is it on? Is it gone? Is that okay. Um, yeah, so I'm watching a documentary series right now on Skinwalker. I know you talk about that in your book. Um, one of the things that was interesting to me, I mean, obviously they've had all kinds of crazy stuff happen, as well as all these sacred sites. I've been to mm -hmm. several of them myself. I lived overseas, so I went to a lot of them um, when I went to school in England. But um, they were they were frightened. You could tell the people who bought it recently in this series um the owners and the people living there were would freak out if anyone talked about digging and it seems like when you're talking about the protons and all of that uh it seems like maybe disrupting in you know a process of digging is causing these you know electronic things to happen in the air and they even talked a little bit about how it could be something left over from like nuclear war stuff when they were doing things yeah. in Nevada. Okay. Just like poofed over in a cloud and landed or, but I'd love to have your feedback. On yeah. That. Okay. I probably have a slightly different view. Um, I, I, I mean, I'm firstly, um, you know, I was privileged to be able to go to Skinwalker Ranch and spend a good couple of days there during the preparation of this book, Origins of the Gods. Wow. So I was able to get not just a good hanger on the actual ranch, explore the entire ranch, but also to talk to, you know, all the main characters that, that you know from the TV show. 
but also to talk to various workers there who had nothing to do with the TV show and had no real interest in UFOs. But the important thing is, is that many of those workers had themselves seen objects either at close quarters or appearing high in the sky, just bursting uh, into appearance. So this is not just, you know, a creative phenomenon. This is a real thing that's going on there. But the, the, the significant thing is that it has all the correct geology. There is a fault line going through what's known as the northern mesa on the you know one side of the ranch. This northern mesa is where most of the objects are seen. It's also where most of the strange paranormal activity and the electromagnetic effects take place. Uh, it's also a place that the Native American peoples of the region, there are two different tribes, the Ute and the Navajo, both see in terms of um, what they call the path of the skinwalker. Um, and that obviously needs a little bit of explanation. But basically the term skinwalker simply means the supernatural form that a shaman or witch, and I use that term loosely, of a Navajo is expected to take when they do their rituals and get into a trance state or altered state of consciousness. And the most obvious animal that they that, that they take for, excuse me, is a wolf, is a wolf. In fact, the word for wolf in Navajo um, is essentially the same as the same word for witch in Navajo. Mm. Don't ask me to tell me what it is. It's in the book, I can't remember the moment, but, but anyway, um, so the reason why the skinwalkers became associated with the ranch is that there were wars between the Ute and the Navajo in the 19th century. And the Ute um, did some pretty bad things to, to the Navajo. And shortly after this time, they occupied the area of Skinwalker Ranch, which had up to that point been a sacred land, like a no man's land between tribal territories. And, and once this, this took place, they began to see weird things, what they interpreted as skinwalkers because they thought that they'd been put under a curse, this is the Utes, by their rivals, the Navajos, as revenge, basically, for what, for what had actually taken place. So in other words, I suspect that they were seeing strange lights and experiencing paranormal activity and maybe seeing cryptids which are also seen frequently uh, often in the form of a wolf or a, or a dog-headed figure which is correctly known as a lycon in, in archaeology um, and they were interpreting this in terms of this curse um, hence the curse that's put over the land now going back to what you said to do with um, the idea of digging this is a bit of a sort of, I mean, if there are, uh, I mean, obviously there are various books and I understand that this digging clause um, was something that was actually practical originally in the contract that the Sherman family read. And it was nothing to do with no digging here because the, you know, the paranormal activity, but it was to do with oil rights um, and what was underneath the, the, the actual soil itself. But they, the Sherman family who were there in the 90s, interpreted this possibly in terms of the fact that, you know, bad things would happen if you dig. And of course, this has been carried on now through into the modern era um, and the idea that bad things will happen if, if you actually do that. But what's so important here, and we've not mentioned this up to this point, 
is that the phenomena itself, the manner that it appears, the way it appears, the time that it appears, has a lot to do with what we call human consciousness interaction. And what I mean by this is that our presence, our thoughts, our observations of what is actually taking place there can trigger experiences and can trigger the manner that it appears to us. In other words, that there are there is an intelligence building up at such places, which you might see in terms of an, an entity, a single entity, or another term for it that we use is egregore. An egregore means a created spirit that is fed by human consciousness interaction through the way that we perceive it, how it's perceived through archetypal forms, and the manner that it that will then reappear to us and reappear to anybody, possibly even without knowing what to expect. You know, I'll give you an example. I mean, you know, if you've got uh, a spirit appearing at a waterfall, you know, very often this will manifest, you know, people will see it in terms of a white lady. Well, then a Christian will come along and say, well, that white lady must be the Virgin Mary. And they will start thinking of it in terms of the Virgin Mary. So the next person that comes along doesn't just see a, a, a woman, but they see a woman in, in blue and white and possibly a head thing. And, and then it gets more and more archetypal in form until they see, you know, not just the Virgin Mary, but possibly with the baby Jesus. Or what. And that's creating an archetype. That is feeding an egregore of a site or a location. And this is something which seems to be there at Skinwalker Ranch. And even the, 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 the people that are involved in the television show think that there's a single entity involved, one that controls like a puppet master of what takes place there. It knows them. It sees them. It plays with them. And, you know, the, the, so that the phenomena will occur often when they turn the, the, you know, the a camera off or, you know, uh, a time when they're not expecting it, um, you know, stuff like this. And the same thing is actually said of Britain's own Skinwalker Ranch, which is Bempton in Yorkshire. And Paul Sinclair, good friend of mine, who is the main investigator, written, written various books um, you know, on, on Bempton, says the same thing. And what's so interesting is both the people at Skinwalker Ranch and Paul all, all use the same term quite separately to for this entity this presence they call it the host i mean they've got other names for it as well but that's the common the host i like that it's an interesting term and that seems to be almost like a a sort of generic name for this entity or egregore and these egregores aren't just connected with a single location they can be con connected with a, a, an area an area of a, of a few miles um in, in in diameter or you know triangle or whatever you want um, and it seems to be the same thing there. And the manner that it appears to us, the manner it connects with us, will have an archetypal form. And it's almost like these higher intelligences need that archetypal form to connect with us, because I believe that they don't need bodies. They, you know, they don't need flesh and blood bodies. They are pure consciousness, pure energy. Yeah. But to communicate and connect with us, they need our archetypes they are stronger than those entities that exist in a landscape they can literally take them over and i mean the best um you know way that i can explain this if, if you know you've seen the, the film the matrix and the way that the agents agent smith and his mates 
are able to take over, you know, individuals and suddenly they'll become the agents. Well, if you think of the people that inhabit the matrix as spirits in the landscape everywhere, that what we call these trans-dimensional beings, which, by the way, we call n-dimensional beings or n beings for short, n being number relating to the amount of dimensions which we don't know, uh, these n beings can take over these archetypes to literally feed us information, communicate with us, both as visions, as dreams or whatever. That's the way they communicate with us. And of course, in the last 70 to 80 years, because of the, the modern flying saucer craze and the UFO, you know, we, we assume that a lot of these intelligences are spacemen. So that's what we'll see. We are going to see spacemen in dreams, in visions, abduction experiences, on board experiences. And I'm not saying, as I said, that they're not real spacemen coming to visit us, but that these higher dimensional beings are utilizing that to create these interfaces between themselves and ourselves. Wow. Well, we've got about 12 minutes left, and I really want to dive in before we go about the Kazan Caves. Um, they're in Israel, am I right? Yeah. And, um, yeah. What's the significance of those? Why are they included in the book? And okay. Well, you know, the question you have to ask is if the people that were building the stone circles, you know, let's say 5,000 years ago, were connecting with these lights, with the UFOs and the intelligences associated, with them, perhaps even learning information from them, how long has this been going on? Well, I mean, I personally would say it started very, very early, probably soon after we left Africa. Um, and, you know, one of the first places that, that we went into was the Levant, which is the, you know, the geographical area that includes countries like Palestine, well, not countries, but territories like Palestine, obviously Israel, Syria, Lebanon today. And there is a place just outside of Tel Aviv in Israel called the Kazam Cave. It was only discovered in the year 2000. And when the archaeologists got into it it was it was a you know it was it was like a sort of time capsule of activity from 400 to 200,000 years ago and what they found here was the earliest evidence anywhere in the world of shamanism um, and it took the form of a bone a wing bone of a swan a very powerful bird that had been that the feathers had been deliberate, deliberately roved it had been cleaned and clearly used in some manner. And because we know that from shamanic cultures all over the Eurasian continent and in North America, that the use of that particular bone was used for shamanic flight. In other words, shamans going into an altered state and believing that they would become the bird to go from this world into you know, otherworldly realms that they believe coexist with us, normally invisible to us, that they became convinced and have written uh, you know, papers about this saying that this is the early, earliest evidence of shamanism. I mean, there's other evidence as well as I go into the book. Now, that's incredible. And that, that was enough to get me to drop everything and go out to Israel in the year 2019. But in addition to this, at the same time that these people were inventing shamanism, they were also becoming the smartest people on the planet. A whole number of firsts for humanity 
mm. uh, were achieved by this community. And I mean, I won't bother going into them because we'll be here all night. But I mean, they were becoming incredibly technologically advanced, much more than any of their neighbours. And you have to say to yourself, well, what's the link between that and the fact that they were also becoming the first shamans? They're writing the book on shamanism. And I think that it's to do with the fact that shamanism is about connection and communication with otherworldly intelligences. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't know how they would have perceived those intelligences. Most likely, they would have seen them in terms of their own ancestors, their own great ancestors, but also the spirits of the animals that they would have killed during the hunt. There would have been a symbiotic relationship between yeah. them and those animals that would have been retained during shamanic experiences so that when they entered into this other world, they could communicate with those animals and, and the otherworldly forms of their herds, basically. I mean, almost in a sort of, you know, real life form of a the jungle book, you know, um, Rajar Kipling's book and obviously the film where all the animals talk and communicate and communicate with humans. If you can imagine that, that's what we think the people of the Kesem cave had. But what they weren't, that you know, they weren't communicating directly with the animals. What they were communicating with, certainly on occasions, with was higher intelligences. And the reason why I would propose this is because nearby the Kesem Cave is a very important mountain in biblical tradition. It's called Mount Gerizim, and it was the original dwelling place of God and the gateway to heaven wow. in the book of Genesis. Mm. I mean, obviously, we all associate Jerusalem and Mount Zion with you know, Jewish tradition, but that's late in the day. It doesn't even feature in the early part of the Bible. Yeah the original place of God, the place where God was said to manifest and his presence could be felt was Mount Gerizim. And what we also know is that the form that God appeared on Mount Gerizim was as something known as the Shekinah. The yeah. Shekinah means the light of God. In other words, he would appear like a sort of blinding light, just like Moses encountered on Mount Sinai at a much yeah. later date. And what's so interesting is that, that historically and in modern times, there are reports of mysterious lights appearing on Mount Gerizim. It also has exactly the right type of geology for all of this to take place. That's why, you know, it's like many other holy mountains in other parts of the world. Clearly, lights were manifesting on it and they were being seen as the presence of God himself. Mm. So... You know, this was great. And obviously, after I went to the Kesem Cave, I went to Mount Gerizim, which is today in the Palestinian territories. Um, and I climbed the mountain to speak to the the, the, the the elderly priests of this religious community up there known as the Samaritans, who claim to be the true descendants of the original Israelites. And, you know, I got, I got up there and got into conversation with them. And I, I said, look, you know, I understand that you know, strange lights are seen on the mountain. Do they still occur today? Oh, yes, yeah, you know, they said yes. I said, well, how are they interpreted today? What, what, how do you see them? And they said, Malach, Malach, which is a, uh, an Arabic uh, and I think Hebrew word uh, meaning angels. So to them, these strange lights that are seen on the mountain are 
evidence of the presence of the messengers of God, um, which is so fascinating because what we would call UFOs or UAPs are still being seen by this religious community as the manifestation of angels of God, you know, which is, I think, quite remarkable and, you know, is very is perfect ancient alien stuff in in my opinion yeah. Yeah. you know and, and i think the other important thing to remember is that when the israelites first got into um the promised land of canaan which is on the the west side of the uh, the jordan river jordan the first place that they they go to is not jerusalem or anywhere it's mount gerizim and they do this huge great ritual known as the ceremony of the curses and the blessings there where they have six tribes on the slopes of one mountain and six tribes on the slopes of the opposite mountain. And in the middle is the Ark of the Covenant. And it's said that the Shekinah rose, you know, above the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant as this was taking place. Uh, and this is really interesting because the instructions on how to make the Ark of the Covenant was given to Moses when on Mount Sinai by God himself in the form of a blazing light mm -hmm. so not only does god at this point give him the ten commandments which are written down on the the, the you know the, the tablets of the law but he's also told how to communicate directly with god through the construction of this box mm -hmm. so he he does he, you know the israelites make this box and god appears as, as a light above it to me this is this is ancient alien technology this is incredible <laughs> You know, yeah. and, and yet we're not necessarily dealing here with flesh and blood aliens, mm -hmm. but communication with transdimensional beings. So this, the summary of all this is I think that not only were the manifestations of Yahweh on Mount Garway, sorry, on sorry, Mount Gerizim, mm -hmm. you know, seen as evidence of the existence of God and may even have formed the the idea of god's existence in the first place mm. you know or, or confirmed it at least among the early israel uh, israelites but that this is something that was going on as early as four hundred thousand years ago and we know that the people at the kezem cave took an interest in mount gerizim because they went there to collect the flint that they used to make their stone tools when all around them was perfectly suitable flint that they could have used why did they go all the way to Mount Gerizim and the answer is almost certainly that they saw Mount Gerizim as a very special place where the lights would manifest where they could have these transformative experiences and thereafter continue this communion this connection with these intelligences through shamanic experiences and through it gain innovation and technology that allowed them to advance much faster than their neighbors and that if you see this as a showcase example, I think something similar was going on with with communities all over the world in the past and probably still continues to this day because if we're talking about this, we can be pretty sure there are institutions around the world that know that communication with these M beings is something that can advance their technologies in everything from you know, from nuclear fusion to AI to, um, you know, to, to, to nanotechnology and whatever, if they can connect directly with these intelligences, find ways of communicating with them, particularly as we're getting into the realm now of quantum 
uh, computers and whatever where we need to advance really quickly and once we get those quantum computers you know we will advance so quickly yeah, yeah, that yeah. it will take us into the next stage of human evolution that's awesome well, well, it's doing it again. Um, um, well i don't know awesome. where the echo's coming from that's weird um so it's, it's only at the beginning when we've interviewed um mary rodwell several times on the show and lots of different people that are doing exactly what you're doing and having these experiences with people who've had you know these great um i i guess ufo contact and and or just alien contact or some kind of supernatural something yeah. but yeah. um the theme that she and many people see is that just like you were talking about, like now they've gone off to be a great sculpture person or have these gifts that have been like, it's almost like the body or the field or all of the person is upgraded in a sense, yeah. kind of higher frequency or something to be able to not only receive different information, but also to be like a transmitter of information as yeah. well. So yeah. I mean, I, eked out with all the frequency stuff and all i love watching yeah. and well, i really believe that there's right. something with the land like you said it, it, even on a frequency level that people living there are can acclimate to or somehow i don't know i think we're all in that process of some type of upgrade going on generally but then there's other pockets of the earth that has like a higher uh i guess and mm. Uh, I'm having a lady who talks specifically about land and that kind of technology. And I was talking to my husband about it last week because I was like, isn't it interesting um, how when you're in, when you're living in the place that you feel called or that you just feel happy at that your um, surroundings and or things seem to just fall in line and you, you're happier and the people are happier. And it, and my question, um, when I was discussing this with my husband last week, I was like, well, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Is it, is it that you're seeing a different pattern showing up because you yourself are happy, therefore you're sending out uh, a transmission of high frequency um, happiness, and then you're getting a match to it because we magnetically draw that to us um, versus being somewhere where you're really clearly not supposed to be and um, you feel that and you know that you're in the wrong by not living true, um, being in the place you're supposed to. And then you start creating all of these things to show and, and like prove yourself right that I'm not supposed to be here. Like maybe these people aren't my people. Maybe this isn't the place I'm supposed to be. Maybe I'm supposed to live in Ohio or, you know, wherever. But in, I know a whole different con context of a conversation to have. But. Uh, I think that you're bringing a lot of light to all of these sacred places, the electronics of that, the electronics of our own DNA and our own technology. And then this off planet aspect of, you know, there's clearly something bigger, like you keep saying, there's clearly something way bigger than us. And it would be ridiculous to think that we're the only ones here and that we're the, you know, we're the highest or anything. So um, anyway, but we have gone over time and I, <laughs> enjoyed this so much i could just listen and listen and listen um but thank you so much for being with us and uh, any final words um of where you um any hope or encouragement to those watching of you know how we can upgrade how we can 
maybe have these um, supernatural experiences or uh, align with our highest? Well, there's, there's too much to say, I think. But mm -hmm. I mean, you know, lots of people who are watching this will have had their own experiences. And I think that the hashtag here is believe all experiences, I think. You know, in other words, what people experience themselves is real or certainly it's what they believe has happened and in some way has. I mean, the, the only if is a case of what is what is it? What's the intelligence? Are they communicating specifically with flesh and blood aliens or is it interdimensional? You know, we, we don't know. Um, but these higher intelligence exist. They impact human evolution human innovation, human technology, and that you should believe in yourself, believe in what you're doing. And there are locations very clearly that it that, that connection can be made. And they're what we call today portal location. We're not just talking about, you know, places like Skinwalker Ranch or Bempton. There are many of them. You know, many of the stone circles of Britain are built where mysterious lights have been seen. I mean, I talk all about this in my book, Light Quest, for instance. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of this subject is now being confirmed by science. Yeah. I mean, coming from different directions, of course. Um, but you know, in other words, you don't need now to be seen as, um, you know, particularly strange or mad or, um, or, or whatever to, 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 for, for these experiences to be real, you know, just believe in them. You know, and your impact with intelligences is really, really important um, because they are there. And as we go along, that connection will get stronger and stronger and stronger. I do not believe that there's going to be any kind of massive disclosure anytime soon. I think that it's something that the disclosure has been going on for the last 400,000 years. <laughs> um, and yeah, of course, you know, we're going to get people, you know, things like the US Navy releasing these videos and probably you know, a better understanding of the existence of this phenomena, but it's still up to us to try and understand those intelligences because that's something that the that the authorities or whatever, they're not going to be willing to tackle because they don't want to get deep down into things like, you know, alien experiences, abduction, stuff like that. That's still in our realm and that's something that we've got to help everybody that has this type of experience um you know and try and explain it to them and, and say look you know you're not going mad you're, you're not strange this is something that's been going on for many many thousands of years so you know just enjoy it just be a part of it um and go with it and see what happens but i mean from my own point of view as we're coming to the end now i mean um andrewcollins.com is my website all as it sounds and uh, on there is you know any links that you that if you wanted to communicate with me through email um and obviously all my social media links are on there plus we do tours to places like turkey and egypt i work with megalithomania and Hugh newman colleague of mine um and obviously there's lists of any events coming back and details of all all of my books and the current book is origins of the gods which is co-authored with my good friend and colleague uh, greg little uh, he his side of it is all to do with the Native American side and how they 
fully believe in these intelligences, not just for communication purposes, but their whole existence related to communication with them and that they would do these incredible complex rituals uh, every year or whatever to continue that association so that their world did not come to an end. That's Greg's side of the book. Mine is obviously the stuff that we've been talking about today. So that's available from Amazon or Barnes and Noble or any good online bookstore. So thank you for obviously listening to me and um, uh, I'll no doubt be back again at some point. Yeah. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you for your time. Um, like I say, I think with um, the past sort of couple of years we've had, people are really seeking, the, are asking the deeper questions and um, you're really out there doing the work and, and providing scientifically solid answers to some very, very out there topics. So I'm really, really grateful for your work and thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, sorry, my pleasure. That's the right word. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, both of you guys. And um, definitely go to swiftfire.org, get on the newsletter. I have my books, all the different things out there. I know, Craig, you have any final words on where people can find you as well? Yeah, um, I do play drums for a band called Nth Ascension. Find us at nthascension.com or on Facebook, Nth Ascension Music. That's N-T-H, the mathematical term. Uh, my wife has a crystal shop, UK-based, so we might have some UK people on here, crystalfalls.co.uk. Um, yeah, just, just hit me up on Facebook, Craig Martin Walker. Uh, I've got space for some friends. So, yeah, I'd love to meet as many of you as I can. Awesome. Well, I'm going to put all the links in here for everybody. So it's very, very easily uh, found. So you can find Andrew, his books, and all the great things that he has with his website, um, as well as Craig and I. And uh, I just want to thank you again for your time and just keep thank doing you. what you're doing. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. Talk soon. Thank you. Okay. Thank Bye -bye. you.